Good evening, I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. On the news hour tonight, the latest on hostage negotiations and Israel's plan to evacuate Palestinian civilians before full-scale operations to eliminate Hamas in Rafah get underway. The Supreme Court hears arguments on whether social media platforms have First Amendment free speech rights. And relief for food allergy sufferers after trials show an asthma drug reduces dangerous reactions to certain foods. It's been approved now for 21 years to treat asthma. So a lot of the safety um, as, as we face with any drug has been sorted out over those 21 years. Welcome to the News Hour. President Biden this evening said it's his hope that by next Monday a deal could be struck to implement a ceasefire in Gaza and start an exchange of Israeli hostages for Palestinian prisoners. Meantime, Jordan's King Abdullah warned against an Israeli invasion plan for Rafah in southern Gaza. Rafah is now home to many of Gaza's 2.3 million Palestinians who fled fighting in other parts of the Strip. Following this all is our Nick Schifrin, and he joins me now. So, Nick, let's begin with this hostage deal. President Biden says he hopes will be implemented by Monday. What do we know about that? U.S. and Israeli officials tell me that they have a new outline of a deal that would stop the war for about six weeks uh, and lead to the release of 35 to 45 hostages. That includes women, the elderly, and the wounded. Now, one of the obstacles still is female Israeli soldiers, believed to be five of them, whether Hamas will release them. And there's still no agreement right now as to how many Palestinian prisoners being held by Israel would be released. Now, the goal of this would be to implement this before Ramadan, which begins uh, around March 11th. Today on Fox & Friends, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reiterated his criticism that he's made multiple times about Hamas's negotiating stance, but also said something he doesn't usually say, that he personally wants a deal. I'm not sure Hamas is there. They have what I'd call outlandish demands that's like in another orbit, another planet. They have to come down to reality. Uh, uh, and I think that if that's the case, we'll, we'll be able to have a deal. We certainly want it. I want it. But he also said that he would or is committed to going into Rafah, as he has threatened. And as you said, Amna, some half of Gaza's population, 1.2, 1.3 million people are in Rafah today. Massive tent cities, the, the city closest to Egypt right there. Uh, the Israeli Defense Forces have presented a fan plan to evacuate all of those tents that you see, more than a million people, and then assault the city. But this afternoon, U.S. officials say that they have not received any details of that plan and, frankly, are skeptical that Israel would be able to execute that plan, at least on an Israeli timeline. And Nick, and I, you've been reporting on the unimaginable conditions on the ground there in Rafah, but the humanitarian concerns extend far beyond that one city, right? Up and down Gaza, absolutely. And some of the focus right now is on the quantity of aid that is or is not going into Gaza. Today, Human Rights Watch accused Israel of not living up to its promises uh, under the International Court of Justice ruling that required Israel to actually deliver as much aid as possible into Gaza. We also saw uh, an extraordinary scene right there. Uh, so many Gazans filling the beach that's on the Mediterranean Sea after Jordan uh, airdropped humanitarian aid. Jordan has been airdropping aid, uh, but clearly not designed to be in the sea. But that aid's in the sea. And so many people so desperate 
for that aid. Today, the UN uh, Relief and Works Agency cited a report that a two-month-old baby uh, actually died of hunger uh, and said that one in six uh, children in northern Gaza are, quote, severely malnourished. Meanwhile, I should ask you about news out of the West Bank. The uh, Palestinian Authority Prime Minister resigned today. What should we understand about that? Yeah, so the U.S. hopes that a hostage deal and a temporary pause, as the U.S. calls it, would lead to a ceasefire, and that that can unlock more regional goals, uh, Gaza governance, uh, how to reconstruct Gaza, and then the larger goal of Israel Saudi normalization. Uh, and the U.S. hopes that this resignation today is the first step uh, in leading towards some kind of deal over the future of Gaza governance. So the Prime Minister, Mohammed Shtaya, resigned, uh, and Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas uh, is expected to replace him with Mohammed Mustafa. Uh, Mohammed Mustafa, there he is there, is an economist. Uh, he's close to Abbas, has been the chairman of the Palestine Investment Fund. But look, the expectations uh, are very low here. Um, Mustafa is not seen as someone who will change the Palestinian Authority in any fundamental way. And of course, Israel has already rejected the Palestinian Authority playing a part in Gaza. This is really about U.S. credibility and U.S. and its Arab allies being able to coordinate for these larger regional goals that they have. And also another story here in Washington, D.C. I know you've been following related to all of this. On Sunday, there was a U.S. Air Force service member who, in protest of the U.S. policy uh, towards the war in Israel, lit himself on fire outside of the Israeli embassy. What should we know about him and what happened? Uh, his name is Aaron Bushnell. Uh, he was an active duty airman. Uh, according to reports, he's 25 from San Antonio, Texas. The Air Force has confirmed that he died uh, of those uh, wounds last night. And this is him introducing himself outside the embassy in Washington, live streaming on Twitch, which is a social media platform. He says, quote, I will no longer be complicit in genocide. And he called what he was about to do, quote, an extreme act of protest. But compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not, it's not extreme at all. That is the end of the quote there. He wrote on his LinkedIn page he wanted to be a software engineer and was taking classes in an online university. Uh, the Air Force, as I said, has not confirmed his name, but they have confirmed that he died of his wounds. Senior defense officials do not believe that he represents some kind of trend uh, inside the military. Uh, but the fact is that this is an extraordinarily rare very public protest that ended in one airman's death. Nick Schifrin, thank you as always for all your reporting. Appreciate it. Thank you. In the day's other headlines, former President Trump appealed a $454 million judgment in his New York civil fraud case. Judge Arthur Engeron ruled Mr. Trump lied about his financials as he built his real estate business. The former president's lawyers contend the judge may have made errors or exceeded his jurisdiction. The appeals process could take months and could temporarily halt any collection of funds from Mr. Trump. In Ukraine, government troops have retreated again in the east as Russian forces push forward. The Ukrainians pulled back today from the village of Lestochkine. It's just outside of Avdivka, which the Russians captured earlier this month. Ukrainian officials say their soldiers face superior Russian firepower, while additional U.S. aid is blocked in Congress. A spokeswoman for Alexei Navalny says supporters may try to hold a farewell event in Moscow this week. The Russian opposition leader died earlier this month in prison. Another associate claimed today that talks had been underway on a prisoner swap for Navalny. The U.S. State Department declined to comment. 
Sweden cleared the final hurdle to NATO membership today as Hungary's parliament voted to ratify its bid. After 18 months of delays, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban acknowledged Sweden's criticism of his right-wing government. Still, he urged lawmakers to put aside any resentment. There will continue to be differences of opinion because Swedes and Hungarians are not the same. But we look at our differences with understanding because that is how serious nations behave. The Swedish-Hungarian military cooperation and Sweden's accession to NATO will strengthen Hungary's security. Finland also applied to join NATO after Russia invaded Ukraine. It won the needed unanimous consent from alliance members nearly a year ago. Here at home, President Biden and former President Donald Trump now plan visits to the Texas border on Thursday as the immigration issue intensifies. Mr. Biden will be in Brownsville, Texas, while Mr. Trump is in Eagle Pass. That's about 325 miles away. Both areas have seen a surge in illegal border crossings. A former FBI informant charged with inventing a bribery scheme about the president and his son, Hunter Biden, will stay jailed for now. A federal judge in California ruled today that Alexander Smirnov might flee if he's released. Smirnov's accusations against Hunter Biden and President Biden were at the heart of a House Republican impeachment inquiry, which Democrats say has now been proven baseless. The Biden administration is moving to block a proposed merger between grocery giants Kroger and Albertsons. The deal, valued at $24.6 billion, would be the largest supermarket merger in U.S. history. The Federal Trade Commission filed suit today, saying it would eliminate competition and drive up prices. On Wall Street, stocks lost a little ground to start the week. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 62 points to close at 39,069. The Nasdaq fell 20 points. The S&P 500 slipped 19. And the first U.S. moon lander in more than 50 years is expected to go dark tomorrow. Intuitive Machines says its Odysseus craft, seen in this fisheye view, landed sideways, so it can't operate for a week as planned. Meantime, Japan says its moon lander, also resting on its side following a rough landing last month, survived the weeks-long lunar night and is operating again. Still to come on the NewsHour, Tamara Keith and Amy Walter look ahead to Michigan's presidential primary. An Afghan activist's memoir details her inspirational fight to educate women. And artificial intelligence helps decipher ancient scrolls buried in volcanic ash. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. The Supreme Court heard arguments today in a highly consequential case navigating First Amendment protections on social media. Tech companies are taking on state laws, decrying conservative censorship online. A decision here could fundamentally change the use of speech on the Internet. The Supreme Court is wading into a digital age First Amendment battle. Do social media companies have the right to decide what appears on and what's removed from their own platforms? That is the question at the heart of two major cases heard today by the justices. A decision here could give government the power to change what millions of people see online. After sites like Twitter and Facebook removed former President Donald Trump following the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, Texas and Florida passed laws restricting how these platforms moderate and remove content and users from their websites. But tech industry groups sued the states. Whether it happens to a conservative group or to a liberal group or to any other kind of group, okay, people in America 
should be able to access the modern public square to express themselves. It does tend to be conservative groups that are uh, under the thumb war of some of these social media sites. Alan Gura with the Institute for Free Speech filed an amicus brief with conservative activist group Moms for Liberty in support of the states. Moms uh, for Liberty had a problem. The teachers union, their sort of a tr traditional political adversary, uh, went to Facebook and put pressure on Facebook and said, look, you know, the, the people uh, who are um, uh, promoting disinformation and instead uh, Moms chapters saw uh, all kinds of posts blocked. Things were very innocuous. Things like, are you ready to run for school board? Or questions about, uh, hey, does anybody know what curriculum is being used by the school district? I think we can all agree that content moderation as a process is really problematic. I don't think the right solution to that is to give the government the ability to impose its own editorial viewpoints on private actors. I think that's a dangerous power to hand the government. David Green is with the Electronic Frontier Foundation and filed a brief opposing the states. Social media sites have a First Amendment right to curate and edit their sites according to their own curatorial and editorial philosophies and policies. That is a right that others in their position have, whether they be art curators or parade organizers. But are tech companies publishers? Gura and the states don't think so. Whose speech is it? And nobody thinks that your speech is the, the company's speech. It's obviously your speech. If I pick up the phone and talk to you today, it won't be at and speech. And at and can't unplug me because they don't like my politics. That back and forth is what the justices themselves navigated today. Marsha Coyle was in the courtroom and joins us now. Marsha, great to see you. Good to see you. These are big issues here, free speech and content moderation and social media platforms. How did the justices seem to be navigating and examining these issues today? Well, I think it's a difficult one. It's just as you said, for many levels, uh, they're having trouble. And, uh, but they asked good questions. Uh, most of the arguments focused on, as one of your speakers just said, uh, whether social media platforms fall into a category of newspaper publishers where they can pretty much uh, determine how they use the content they have, or are they more like common carriers, such as a telegraph or anything that carries a message from point A to B but doesn't do anything else. So uh, they also struggled with language. Justice Alito asked at one point, well, what is content moderation? Is it just another way of saying censorship? Uh, and there were other words, too, that, that created problems. So uh, this is a, a difficult case for them on more levels than just determining which category to put social media platforms into. I mean, the concerns around censorship online have long been more of a conservative issue. Did we hear questions from the conservative justices that seemed to align with that view or to challenge it? No, not at all. Uh, and it seemed as though as they struggled with the categories of newspapers versus common carriers, uh, that they weren't focused at all on politics or ideology. Uh, this is clearly an attempt to become very familiar with what social media does, what these platforms do. And that's one of the problems that they're having in the case. They didn't know how broadly these laws sweep. Justice Barrett, for example, pointed out well, some say these, these laws could cover Venmo, uh, Uber, Not email. Not just limited to social media platforms. Exactly. Email, uh, direct messaging. Uh, and 
they don't know. In fact, as they asked the lawyers, they said, well, they might, it might cover them. And why don't they know? Because the way the case came to the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. there was no trial below on the merits to flesh all this out through discovery. Well, I want to ask you about the arguments on both sides of the debate here. And we did speak earlier with Jamil Jaffer of the Knight Institute, who argues that actually both sides of the debate have some merit to their arguments. Take a listen. Everybody involved in it claims to be a champion of free speech and the First Amendment. Uh, you know, you have the social media platforms claiming that they um, are uh, speakers and editors here and that these laws are a form of censorship of their First Amendment protected activity. Uh, and on the other side, then you have the states arguing that uh, these laws are intended to protect the free speech rights of social media platforms users. Uh, you know, the truth is that that you know, everybody has a point. You need to find a way of accounting for all of the First Amendment interests uh, in play here. Marsha, for an issue as core as free speech, we're talking about the First Amendment here, and as broad and influential as these as social media platforms, what are the implications of a decision like this? Well, it depends on who wins and who <laughs> loses. Uh, if the uh, platforms lose, uh, they claim that they will have to put all kind of speech on their platforms, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, and their desire, their rules that they have to try to get a handle on hate speech, uh, on bullying, uh, they will have to also put up pro-bullying and pro-hate speech. Um, that They just will not be able to exercise the editorial discretion they have. On the other hand, the states don't think that there's going to be a parade of horribles, uh, that there are other ways to deal with that kind of bad speech. So does all of this say to you that the justices are more likely to try to keep this as narrow as possible? Yes, it does. In fact, uh, I think because they don't know how broadly the law sweeps, they did talk. Uh, I will say, though, that it seemed to me they were more inclined uh, to view platforms as closer to newspapers and publishers than to common carriers. But because they don't know how broad the law sweeps, they did talk about uh, keeping injunctions that are on pl in place right now that temporarily keep the laws on hold, but sending the cases back to the lower court in order to flesh out a lot of these issues. We should mention, too, this is one of a handful of cases the justices are considering yes. about social media. Precedent here is hard, right? A lot of it predates oh. the Internet yes. era. What should we understand about why the justices are taking up these cases and how they're viewing them? Um, no, I think this is just uh, the inevitability of uh, how uh, things have changed and there are challenges and they come to the court. Uh, so uh, I'm not surprised that they're getting more and more into this and having more and more cases come to them. Uh, just this term, not only do we have the two cases from Florida and Texas, but there are two additional cases that they already heard arguments in that really involve public officials and how they use their uh, websites and whether they can block uh, commenters uh, on their websites. So uh, I think we're going to see these cases come in a variety of situations. And uh, it's uh, a new world for the justices. For many of them, it's a new world. A lot to make sense of at the Supreme Court. We're so glad you're here to help us do it all, <laughs> Marsha Coyle. Thank you so much. Great My to see pleasure, you. My pleasure, Amna. There's some relief for the 20 million plus people in the U.S. who have food allergies, many of whom face severe dangers. 
A new study in the New England Journal of Medicine reports that the drug known as Zolaire allows people to tolerate higher doses of allergenic foods before developing a reaction after an accidental exposure. The FDA earlier this month expanded approval of Zolaire to include treatment for anyone one year or older. We're joined now by the study's principal investigator, Dr. Robert Wood of the Johns Hopkins Children's Center. Thanks so much for being with us. And we should say that there is no cure for food allergies, but how much of a game changer is this, especially for children? We've gone from essentially having no treatment for food allergy, uh, literally just uh, telling people to avoid what you're allergic to and carry your emergency medicines if you have an accidental exposure. So going from there to here is really an enormous change for the world of food allergy. And for people with severe food allergies, there's so much fear and anxiety. I know you say you have teenage patients who've never been to a restaurant uh, because their families are concerned about exposure. They don't take uh, trips on airplanes for the same reason. How might this improve quality of life for people? Yeah, that's really one of the big issues. You know, reactions happen, they can be really dangerous, but a lot of the burden of having a food allergy does relate to that day-to-day -day fear of is this the day that he or she is gonna have that accidental exposure, you know, at school, and is this the day they're going to die? Now, those things are not that common, but the anxiety that people live with is very real and really a daily burden. How does Zolaire work for people with severe food allergies? What it's basically doing is uh, blocking the antibodies that our immune systems make if you're going to develop an allergy. And that's called an IgE antibody. And Zoller is called anti-IgE. So it literally acts to bind to, sort of to mop up all of the IgE in your system so that you're going to be less prone to have a reaction, uh, especially with a small exposure. Is this a lifelong commitment for people who choose this treatment? And I ask the question, one, because of the cost, the list price is as high as $5,000 a month for adults, typically lower based on insurance, obviously. And it's not a really easy drug to take. It's taken by injection every two to four weeks, which might be tough for children who don't like getting shots. Yeah, it's uh, not perfect, but the benefits for those people who really need it will certainly outweigh the risks. Lifetime or, or not, it, it is a medicine that is only gonna work while you're on it. So once you stop the medicine, it will wear off. But people don't necessarily need to be on it for life. Some may choose, and we've had a lot of conversations with patients saying, I'm doing okay right now, but the day I leave for college, I want to be on this medicine because uh, so much of my food will be less under my control. They may take it for those four years. They may take it for 10. Um, there may be far better treatments in, in 10 or 15 years. So it's uh, not a lifetime commitment by any means. How safe is it? It's very safe. And one of the neat things about this drug is that it's been approved now for 21 years to treat asthma. So a lot of the safety, um, as, as we face with any drug, has been sorted out over those 21 years. There is a warning on the drug that it could cause an allergic reaction. Some people are actually allergic to the drug itself. Uh, but that's a fairly unusual circumstance and uh, we think can be um, managed just by careful observation. And Dr. Wood, lastly, food allergies have been increasing in prevalence over the last 20 years. Do we know exactly why? We do not know exactly why. We have a lot of theories. A lot of them relate back to this thing called the hygiene theory, saying we live in too clean an environment. But there are clearly many factors that go into this that may relate to our diet, other things in our environment. Uh, and uh, it, it, we're still quite a ways away from really understanding this uh, quite incredible rise in the prevalence of food allergy. Dr. Robert Wood with the Johns Hopkins Children's Center. Thanks so much for your time this evening. You're welcome. Thanks.
A campaign for Michigan voters to boycott President Biden in Tuesday's primary has picked up momentum. Some Muslim and Arab Americans are hoping to send a clear message to the president after months of frustration, they say, with the administration's handling of the war in Gaza. In Michigan, a winter of political discontent. Ahead of that state's presidential primary, President Biden's handling of the Israel-Hamas war is top of mind for many Democratic voters. Shame on you, Biden! Now some Democratic activists and local leaders are organizing a protest vote against the president, encouraging voters to tick uncommitted on their ballots. Joe Biden failed himself. Joe Biden failed the humanity. So Muslim American community, our message, yes, indeed, February 27th in Michigan, we are voting uncommitted. We need to show President Biden and all the other candidates that we support Palestine. We don't support our U.S. tax dollars going towards Israel to ethnically cleanse Palestine. With more than 200,000 Muslim and Arab American voters in Michigan, their message remains clear. Without them, there's no winning the state. Over the weekend, Democratic leaders like Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer urged voters to think about what a protest vote might yield. It's important not to lose sight of the fact that any vote that's not cast for Joe Biden supports a second Trump term. I am encouraging people to cast an affirmative vote for President Biden. I understand the pain that people are feeling and I'll continue to work to build bridges with um, folks in, in all of these communities. As a Biden-Trump rematch becomes more of a reality after a 20-point victory for Mr. Trump in South Carolina. That is really something. This was a little sooner than we anticipated. It was an even bigger win than we anticipated. It hasn't deterred South Carolina's former governor, Nikki Haley, from forging ahead to Michigan. I said earlier this week that no matter what happens in South Carolina, I would continue to run for president. I'm a woman of my word. Haley still trying to carve out a lane of her own. It is why we must have a new generational leader. And you're not going to get peace. If you're like Joe Biden putting your head in the sand, or if you're like Donald Trump, where he's saying, don't pay attention to the rest of the world, just live in our own little bubble. And while some Haley supporters in Michigan say they're hopeful. I really hope that more voters come out and really support her because I think that she really represents the, the new way that we need to go instead of just going back to what we did with Trump. They're not necessarily optimistic. Um, so I'm happy to hear what she has to say, but I think from a numbers perspective, very, very basic, uh, you know, straw poll for my, myself. It doesn't seem like uh, the support's there. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute has been making one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. For the political stakes of South Carolina, Michigan, and beyond, we turn to our Politics Monday team. That's Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter and Tamara Keith of NPR. So lots to discuss. I'm very glad you both are here. Let's start with this protest vote against President Biden in Michigan. The organizers say it's not an anti-Biden effort. They say it's a, 
a protest vote on humanitarian grounds. How do you see this playing out politically, Amy? Um, this is going to be very interesting as we go forward because in Michigan, we know that this group in particular is aiming to get at least 10,000 people to vote uncommitted. And 10,000, by the way, is the margin by which Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton in 2016 and what was a very big surprise on election night. Mm -hmm. um, so it is both showing their displeasure with what is happening in Gaza, but also saying, do not ignore us. Um, or our concerns, um, and don't take us for granted. In fact, when I was talking to some folks over the weekend in Michigan, they said, you know, a lot of what's happening in Michigan with this frustration has been building for a lot longer than just the time uh, of the war in Gaza, that the sense that these communities have been taken for granted by Democrats, they aren't doing the sort of caring and watering and feeding of them that they should do. And it is also about the fact that in these states, whether it is, I know we're going to talk about South Carolina in a minute, whether it's um, losing uh, voters to um, in South Carolina, those who didn't vote for Trump but voted for Haley, or mm -hmm getting these uncommitted voters, these are the kinds of margins that can determine whether you win or lose. And it is, for Biden, a group of voters that nationally uh, are worrisome in terms of keeping into his coalition, particularly voters of color and younger voters. Well, Tam, how worried is the Biden campaign about this? I mean, what are they telling you? They're saying they're going to keep fighting for these voters, that they are not going to give up on their votes. And, and they also do point to numbers that say that 10,000 is really unambitious. Uh, it is highly likely that more than 10,000 people will vote uncommitted because go back cycle after cycle after cycle and way more than 10,000, something like 20,000 people have voted uncommitted going back years and years and years. Um, However, the president does have a problem. The White House and the Biden campaign acknowledge that there's a, a group of voters, a significant group of voters, that is really upset. Uh, and the president is in a difficult position because he has made a calculation uh, based on global alliances and history and his experience and all of these other things related to Israel. Um, he held... Uh, Netanyahu close initially. Literally, I watched him hug him on the tarmac in mm -hmm. Tel Aviv right after October 7th. Um, and that worked very well for President Biden with Jewish voters who are also a very important constituency. Um, and also Biden believed it was the right move politically. Hug him close in public, privately push for better policy outcomes. Well, President Biden really badly wants a ceasefire, or they won't use that term, but a significant pause. They want the hostages back. They need this situation to move to a better place for humanitarian reasons, for policy reasons, but also for political reasons, because it is a big gaping sore for President Biden with key voters, younger voters and, and voters of color, and, and particularly Muslim-American voters. Well, let's talk about South Carolina, because Nikki Haley finished 20 points behind Donald Trump. As we saw in the piece, she's still vowing to stay in the race. Her campaign says she raised $1 million the day after the loss, but she, as we all know, lost the financial backing of that super PAC that's backed by the, the Koch brothers, that powerful donor network. What is her, what's her end game? What's her strategy moving forward? To just <laughs> amass as many delegates and see what happens? Yeah, I, that seems to be part of it. And it also, you know, you, when you talk to folks who are either involved or watching from the periphery, there is a sense that she's just sort of enjoying herself, enjoying this moment. She is getting national attention. Um, 
To me, the biggest question going forward is whether she, at the end, will endorse Donald Trump. Whether what we're seeing right now is actually a movement to, um, to take away a constituency from Donald Trump, if she's going to say, I'm here to tell these voters, the ones who showed up for me in November, do not go and rally behind Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. That would be incredibly significant. What we also know, much like we do in Michigan, is the kinds of people who are showing up for Nikki Haley are the kinds of voters that Republicans have been bleeding in the era of Trump is um, pretty significantly. White, college-educated, suburban voters. Now, we don't know that all of these voters who voted for Nikki Haley were ever thinking about voting for Trump. Maybe they voted for Biden last time around. But it, again, that's why Michigan and South Carolina are really fascinating, because they both highlight the challenges that these two men have in what we know will be a very, very close contest in the fall of keeping every member of their coalition on their team, they can't afford for them to defect or stay home or vote third party. Yeah. And Tam, on that point, going back and looking at my notes from this election cycle, 49% of Republican caucus goers didn't support Donald Trump in Iowa. 45% of New Hampshire Republican primary voters didn't vote for him. And then you have 40% of Republican voters in South Carolina who supported Nikki Haley. What does that say about Donald Trump's weaknesses as a candidate? Well, Nikki Haley would tell you it says a <laughs> lot about Donald Trump's weaknesses as a candidate. And those weaknesses are real and they are there. But the issue for Republican voters and for the Republican primary is there isn't an alternative that is more popular than former President Trump. So Nikki Haley uh, is not going to win the primary. It's just not going to happen. And yes, there are very real concerns among Republicans about what happens in the general election. It's a big part of Nikki Haley's stump speech, you know, that that uh, Biden polls better against Trump than she does than he does against her. Um, but the reality is that once former President Trump really is the nominee, there will be a lot of consolidation. Those 40%, some large share of them, are Republican voters who are going to return home. Some share of them are not. Some of them are Democrats voting in open primaries. And some of them are never-Trump Republicans who are trying to find a home. And it's not clear whether the Biden campaign, which has their eyes on them, will be able to persuade them to vote for him mm -hmm. or whether they will stay home or uh, vote for Mike Pence or... To Mickey Mouse. Well, in the meantime, Donald Trump wants a leadership change at the Republican National Committee in an effort to install loyalists, including yep. potentially his daughter-in-law. Uh, Ronna McDaniel, the current chair, says she's stepping down effective March 8th. This will be after a Super Tuesday. What's the significance of this, Amy? We've been talking about this now for so long, but the party is Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is the party, and this is just the latest example of this. It's not just that it is his uh, daughter-in-law taking over, but it's loyalists with his campaign who will also be installed over at the RNC. We're seeing at the state party level, loyalists to Donald Trump who are running the party. In some cases, there's friction between those loyalists and others in the party that has led to complete paralysis um, in, state, in a state like Michigan, for example. But, you know, we, we also, I think, can look at this as um, a reality check to what a Trump 2.0 presidency would look like, which is whether it is at the RNC or it will be in government positions or at the White House, only those who are the most loyal to Donald Trump will get those positions. Remember back in 2016 and when he was in the White House um, in 2017, 
he kind of was working with the establishment. It's also true that the, the establishment now is more Trumpy than ever when you look at what Congress looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, the folks who have come in since Trump's election in 2017 look a lot more like him than those quote unquote traditional Republicans who were around before he was elected. And McDaniel put out a statement, part of which reads, the RNC has historically undergone change once we have a nominee, and it has always been my intention to honor that tradition. Donald Trump is trying to, to make these changes before he is the nominee. <laughs> well, right. yes, but he also has already stacked the deck in a way that it's basically inevitable that he will be the nominee. You know, he'll he'll go into California, he'll go into Michigan, a bunch of these states that are coming up, and he'll get basically all the delegates, if not all of the delegates, and the math is just completely and totally in his favor, uh, in part because of his sway over various state parties. And it was designed that way. And it was de by design. Yeah. Tamara Keith and Amy Walter, thanks so much. You're welcome. When the Taliban roared back to power in Afghanistan in 2021, education activist Bashtana Durrani, then just 24 years old, already had some 7,000 girls enrolled in her organization called Learn Afghanistan. The schools were shuttered. Bashtana was forced to flee. And she's now living in exile here in the U.S., still working to educate girls in secret back home. I spoke with Bashtana earlier today about her remarkable life story told in her new book, Last to Eat, Last to Learn. And I began by asking her about the title. It's basically about the daughters or the first daughters who are always choosing the last ones to be the ones who eat the last because they have to do all the chores, they have to pick up after everyone, and they have to take care of you, everyone. And then the same methodology with me and my co-author, we thought about it and we were like, they're also the choosing the last ones to actually learn because they have to take care of everyone before they choose themselves to learn. So it's basically a dedication to all of them, especially girls, young girls, because they're chosen last to do everything. So it's last to eat, last to learn. This is your message to all of them yes. out there in Afghanistan. Yes. But that wasn't how you were raised. Your father made sure you were raised very differently. Yeah. Why? I mean, because that's, that's, again, the thing. Like, you know, I was, the day I was born, my dad was like, oh, no, this is going to be my son, you know? So I had all the privilege as a son, you know? If I was chosen as a... Uh, I was raised as an elder daughter, I would have definitely been one of those girls. So for me, it was very different. But then again, I witnessed all of that throughout my life. And um, consciously, I had to make that choice to make sure that this is talked about. Um, but personally, I was raised in a very privileged life. And I was raised very nicely. And I talked about everyone. And I was pretty loud. Yeah, I was a, uh, I was a very spoiled kid. Yeah, definitely. Even though you spent much of your life growing up in a refugee camp in Pakistan, you made the decision to go back to Afghanistan. Your father had been going back and forth. And you started an organization so that other girls could learn the same way you did. Tell me about that organization and why that was important. When I was in high school, that was the first time I realized that we are in a refugee camp. Like, this is not the country that we are supposed to be in, you know? And the discrimination came with it and everything came with it. And we were seen differently, you know, wearing a scarf or the way my father used to dress up in turban or something. That was all seen differently. And then most importantly, it was probably me following him wanting to go to back to Afghanistan. But by, at that point, I was so crazily in love with, with Afghanistan. I was like, I need to go back. Like, I want to go back. <laughs> then at the same time, when I ended up in Afghanistan, the first thing I saw was like, even in our own country, we didn't have access to the rights that we are entitled to, that the Constitution entitled us to. So for me, the most important thing was with 
that group that I resonated most with was those young girls, my own cousins. And uh, we say in Pashto or in Islam that charity begins at home. So we had to start at home with all the efforts. And that's how Learn came into being because I really wanted my cousins to go to school. I wanted my family members to end up accessing the same education that I had or the people in refugee camp had. So that's why. And when the Taliban reclaimed power in 2021, you had to shut down your schools. They banned most girls from going to school after a certain grade. You had to flee because you yourself were targeted. But you're still running the organization from afar. How? How, how many girls are you still able to teach and how are they able to study? Oh, it's an effort. <laughs> it's an effort. I, in the middle of the night, we're sometimes talking to the students. Sometimes we have to do meetings in, at 3 a.m. even today. But at the same time, I think it's so rewarding. It's so rewarding. We do a lot of our work in person. More than 300 girls go to school every day walk to school every day, so that's a big thing. More than 30 teachers every day teach in person, so that's a big deal for me. And then more than 40 people are employed right now who are doing something amazing like this, which is banned in Afghanistan, but whatever. Um, but, but, but it is banned. I mean, are you worried yeah. for their safety? Most of the time, yes. I get extremely worried and paranoid sometimes, and I cannot sleep. But then other times, like, I just call them and I talk to them, and they have become part of the family. But then at the same time, it's important for me because in the next 10 years, there might be not a persona, or even if I am, might not be this young to be able to do everything. So I would want more girls to get that empowerment and have that sort of access to opportunities and become the people that they are. My goal is by the end of like 2030, we have more than 3,400 leaders who are all young girls who are all in those provinces, and they lead a movement that could hopefully rebuild Afghanistan from where it has been destroyed, you know. What about your goals for yourself? And, and we should disclose here, I, I was actually part of the team that did help you to evacuate. Uh, it took months to get you out yeah. of Afghanistan. I met you at the airport in Boston when you arrived, helped you get settled at Wellesley yeah. College, where you have built a life. You've graduated, you're getting your master's degree from Harvard, you continue your work. I mean, what does the future hold for you? Uh, immediately, I want to get graduated from Harvard, <laughs> immediately. Um, but also at the same time, I want to build 34 schools by the end of 2025, which is a personal goal, okay. very personal. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also working on this uh, nonprofit incubator that is supposed to sustain humanitarian efforts and educational efforts in conflict zones in all different regions of the world, especially Middle East and Central Asia and South Asia. So I have been working with that uh, at Wellesley on that, um, especially focusing on women. And then hopefully I'll continue doing what I do. And I love what I do, so yeah. What do you think your father, who I know you lost a few years ago, what do you think he would say if he could see you now? I think he would be extremely proud. Like I can say that now confidently, but then at the same time, I'm like, I hope, I wish he could see it and I hope he could see it now, but he definitely would be proud, yeah. The author is Pashtana Durrani. The book is Last to Eat, Last to Learn. Pashtana, always a pleasure to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And we'll be back shortly to take a look at how researchers are using AI to decipher previously unreadable ancient scrolls. But first, take a moment to hear from your local PBS station. It's a chance to offer your support, which helps keep programs like ours on the air.
For those of you staying with us, we hear from the man who to the world is known simply as Ringo. Former Beatles drummer Ringo Starr is on tour after putting out a new recording. Jeffrey Brown spoke with him last fall for our arts and culture series, Canvas. He's youthful and fit, as recognizable as when the Beatles first took the world by storm nearly 60 years ago, performing with his own all-star band, which he's led in various forms since 1989, and now releasing a new EP titled Rewind Forward. For Ringo Starr, the music has always been there. Well, it's what I do. It's what I had a dream at 13, to be a drummer. And I hit that drum and I knew immediately I wanted to be a drummer. I just love music, I love and I wanted to play. And you know, there's not a lot of point being a drummer if you have no one else, you know. What would you do? Just me and the drums. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. You need the others. Close your eyes and I'll kiss you tomorrow. The others would become John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison. Together, the Beatles. But he started life as Richard Starkey, a sickly child in and out of hospitals, a poor kid trying to make his way in working-class Liverpool, England. I was always working on the railways, on the boats, in the factory forever. What was that young boy's, your hopes and dreams at that time? I mean, what could you imagine? Well, it all felt like I was something I was doing till I could do what I wanted to do, which was play. In the hotel's photo gallery, Ringo noticed a 1964 shot of the group with Muhammad Ali, then still Cassius Clay. This was like, you know, early and first time in America. Like when we flew over New York, I felt New York saying, come on down. Yeah. You know, and we were finally in America, the land of all our music that we loved. Because you would listen to American music, yeah, I yeah. know, as and a kid. And I come from a port where, you know, every other house had someone who was in the merchant navy and they would bring records over. And uh, so we heard a lot of sort of country and blues and stuff that England wasn't getting yeah. uh, first. And are the personalities coming out? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> what? <laughs> Is that you? <laughs> yeah. nearly eight years together. Countless hit songs, epic changing albums. Someone's got a hold of me finger. Are you trying to attract attention again? Fun-filled films. She's, she's pulling us. Everyone knew the Beatles, the music and the individuals. For Ringo, who grew up an only child, it was as personal as could be. We had three brothers and we were very close and besides the touring when you know we always shared a room. We only ever got two rooms. It was important, and I think it's part of our makeup that we stayed together and closest and really got to know each other and knew where we're coming from. And that certainly happened. Ringo, behind his drum kit, sang several songs written by the others, including this one. And though far overshadowed by his songwriting partners, he did write a few himself. That helped later in his post-Beatles career. The interesting thing that not a lot of people know is that 
when I'd first present my songs, the rest of the band would be rolling on the floor laughing because I'd really just rewritten some other song. You know, it wasn't my song at all. I just like reworded it. And they say, yeah, sure. <laughs> but uh, that's how I started. I got out of that and started making my own moves. But, you know, George was really helpful. Uh, he produced the first couple of singles that I put out. And uh, God bless him. The Beatles end in 1970 is much discussed, much debated. After the breakup, each Beatle went solo. Ringo, now his own frontman, had a string of hits, including It Don't Come Easy. In fact, he says, it didn't. You've also talked about some of the difficulties there, including well, the struggles. First, when it was first split up, I sat in the garden wondering what to do. It was like, well, that's it now. But, you know, you're so used to that job, and we worked a lot. But then suddenly, well, it's over and it's really over. Yeah, I had a moment of like reflection. And I started to play with other um, artists. And that's what he's continued to do, along with a few other things, including acting. He met his wife, Barbara Bach, while working together on the 1981 movie, Caveman. This new train schedule is Tommy Rot, Baldash, and Cuckoo. And he played Mr. Conductor on the children's series, Shining Time Station. He marks his birthday every year with a peace and love celebration. That, he says, is his one birthday wish. And most of all, the music endures. Our audiences are, are bigger than they were and uh, younger than they were. It's really weird, you know, far out. And we'll see. You know, there's no guarantee, but... Uh, we're doing it with our heart ablazing. And we started talking about that young boy back in Liverpool. It's far out, isn't it? And here it is, but far here you are. I live in LA, you know how far out that is? You know, it's weird. It's weird, but you're still going. I'm still going, yeah. <laughs> For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jeffrey Brown in Los Angeles. Ancient scrolls that were buried in volcanic ash during the eruption of Mount Vesuvius are now being deciphered 2,000 years later, thanks in part to artificial intelligence. Martin Stew of Independent Television News reports from Oxfordshire, England, on the scientific effort of researchers from around the world. Buried under the volcanic ash from Vesuvius, Herculaneum, like Pompeii, is a perfectly preserved time capsule of Roman life some of its secrets were burnt to a crisp. Scorched scrolls indecipherable until now. Unraveling the hidden history of these 2,000-year-old scrolls has required 21st century technology here. A Wembley Stadium-sized synchrotron called Diamond Light Source, which fires beams of light 10 billion times brighter than the sun. We have a bright beam of X-rays that comes out of the diamond synchrotron. They travel downstream and hit a sample, and that makes a picture. The team started by scanning loose fragments. So the scroll 
looks like something you might put on your barbecue. It's so light and burnt. But the ink and the papyrus are almost made out of the same stuff. So you need a bright, very brilliant X-ray beam to be able to tell the difference. So it's like an extreme CT scan? It is like a CT scan off on a very, very, very other level. Because the scrolls are too fragile to physically unroll, the unwrapping was done digitally. Scientists then set about decoding ink patterns using readings they'd taken from the fragments as a kind of cipher. To process so many images, teams around the world joined in, running AI-powered programs, and Yusuf was the first person to reveal a word, purple. I was really excited and just like zooming around in the apartment and while waiting for the experiments to finish. And yeah, uh, it felt really, really amazing um, to actually be one of the first people to actually do this. So far, only a tiny portion of the scrolls have been deciphered. It's believed they belong to a Roman statesman, potentially Julius Caesar's father-in-law. We as humans are going to reconnect with a part of our history that's incredibly difficult to connect to. And what I would like the scrolls to reveal is, is something surprising or even controversial that we don't already know about that period. This project has taken decades, but has proven futuristic technology can give us a glimpse of our forgotten past. And as always, there is more online, including a look at how the costs of clinical trials disproportionately affects low-income communities. And join us again here tomorrow night when we'll hear from Michigan's Democratic Party chair as voters head to the polls for the state's presidential primaries. And that is the news hour for tonight. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. Thanks for spending part of your evening with us. <laughs>